Well, hey, when you think back to when you were a kid, like laying in your parents' backyard or hanging out with your friends on the playground and you got talking in that conversation or you closed your eyes and started to dream, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like when you were younger, maybe seven, eight, nine years old, what was it that came to your mind when you thought about what you wanted to do with your life? Maybe it was an astronaut. Maybe you wanted to be a police officer. Maybe you wanted to be a scientist or an athlete that ran or swam or played hockey in the Olympic Games and won a gold medal for Canada. Maybe you wanted to change the world as a politician or a leader or something like that. What did you want to be when you grew up? When we think back, usually you can look at a kid's toys or what a kid talks about to understand what we all start out with is a core desire. No matter who you are, no matter what color your skin is, no matter where you grew up or how much money you grew up with, we all began with a desire and a dream to do something. And much more often than not, what we dreamt was to do something that mattered. No matter who you are, we want to live out a purpose. And as far back as recorded history goes, this has been the great question that every single worldview and every single religion has to answer. What am I here for? What is my purpose? What am I supposed to do with my life? What is my days, my months, my years, my decades meant to be spent on? Am I here for a reason or am I just a glorious accident of whatever it may be? Every religion has to answer this. Even atheism in the secular worldview that we live in has to recognize the question that we as human beings desire purpose. Every single one of us wants it. The other night, uh, our youth ministry that I get a chance to lead called Ridge Youth from grade six up to grade 12, we got together and we had our Ridge Youth summer movie night. And by chance, we ended up watching this movie called The Incredibles. And you've probably watched The Incredibles. It's one of the best Pixar movies. It's really old, but it holds up so, so well. And in this movie, there's this character who's Mr. Incredible, right? And, And when we see the movie start out, Mr. Incredible is a hero. And he does these things and he saves these people and it's this amazing story and he's like your typical, you know, male Superman type superhero. He's super strong. You can do all these things. But later on, we find him after a whole bunch of things happen working at a desk job. He's working in insurance and he's miserable. He's without purpose. He's frustrated. You can see in the photo here, he's depressed. He's discouraged. He hates it. But I noticed this thing when we were watching the other night with our students that I had never noticed before watching this movie. See, in this one scene, a little old lady comes in and, and she's got this issue with her insurance and, and she comes to Bob or Mr. Incredible and she's talking to him. And she's saying, hey, here's my situation. Here's what's going on. I, I, I need your help. I need this insurance claim to go through because if it doesn't go through, here's the word she uses, I don't know what I'll do. And Mr. Incredible, or Bob, as we now know him, working in the insurance office, you you look at him and you realize, you know, he's not happy because he doesn't have purpose. He's miserable because he doesn't have purpose and he needs to be saving people in order to have purpose. But in this moment, in this scene, we see something about Bob that I think is easy to miss. We see this lady cry out for someone to help her. And even though he's at a desk job, even though he doesn't have a superhero suit on, even though he's not running around beating up bad guys, we see him almost crack a smile and and, and realize that, okay, well, if you do this and if you take your paperwork here and if you do this, he kind of helps her walk around the system so that this little old lady can understand and get what she needs. 
We see him smile, even though he's still at a desk job that he may not think is the best. We see him find joy in his work. Why? Because for Bob, it it wasn't about saving people in a superhero suit. It was about helping people. There was something deeper to his work that mattered. It wasn't just about a bad job. It was a lack of purpose that had destroyed him. It wasn't a lack of excitement or adventure. It was a lack of meaning that was chipping away at his soul. And most of us, even if we're followers of Jesus, have to face this same question at some point or another. Whether that's as a young adult, whether that's later on, if we found ourselves in a different situation, we have to face this question. What am I here for? What am I supposed to do? What is my life about? When I look back, when I'm 80, 90, 100 years old, what am I going to say my life was about? Did it matter? Did I do what I was supposed to? And that's why we're starting this series over this next month called Work. And we're calling this series Work because we think that what you do matters. We think that no matter who you are, no matter how much money you make, no matter what job title you hold, what you do matters. Something that we get up and spend eight to 10 hours a day, depending on what your job is and whatever it may be, something that you spend your life on, it matters. It's not just something that happens behind the scene. It's not just something to get you a paycheck. It's not just something to fill your hours. What we do matters. And I remember when I was kind of 17, 18, 19 years old, and like many 17, 18, 19 year olds, I was in the midst of that same question. What do I do with my life? And at that point, I was a relatively new Christian and I started serving at this camp called Gardam Lake. And, and I loved working at Gardam Lake because what I got to do at Gardam Lake was be a Christian, right? I, I got to love people. I got to share the gospel with these students. I got to spend all my time telling people about Jesus. And so in that moment, I kind of thought, okay, well, that's what I'm supposed to do with my life. And if I'm a Christian, if I believe in Jesus, then what I'm supposed to do is just tell people about Jesus all the time, is be an evangelist, is be telling people about Jesus, is be preaching the gospel. Doing other jobs wouldn't work for that. I can't do that if I work at a coffee shop. I can't do that if I'm pouring concrete. I can't do that if I'm a carrot. I have to be working at this camp or I have to be working at this place where I can tell people about Jesus all the time. Otherwise, what's the point? It doesn't really matter to God. And I had this idea in my head that if I'm doing any other job where I'm not vocally preaching the gospel all the time, then it's a waste. But Christianity, our Christian faith that we believe in here at Ridge Church from its very roots paints a picture much greater than just do whatever you do and drag as many people to heaven with you on your way. It paints a picture much more than be a banker, but a banker who tells other bankers about Jesus. It paints a bigger, more beautiful picture than just making enough money to give to the church and live a comfortable suburban life. And so let's open up to the very first pages of our Bible and let's see what God says about our meaning and our purpose. Genesis 1, 1, the very beginning. In the beginning, God created God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. What is the first action we see God do? The first thing, the first uh, action of our God that we love, that we follow, that we believe in, what is the first action? It is to create. The very first thing that we see about God is that God is an artist. His first act that we see is an act of creation. 
But this idea of artistry, this idea of creation, we don't think about that in ourselves, do we? Most of us don't really view ourselves as creatives or artists, maybe painters or poets, people who spend their time writing. Maybe if you work in some kind of intellectual work and you get to spend your time maybe doing marketing, maybe as an entrepreneur working in the online space. But for most of us, work is not about creativity, Even though the very first image of work that we see God do to create is the first time we see work at play, most of us don't view work as connected to creativity, do we? No, work is about showing up. Work is about putting your nose to the grindstone, working hard. Try to be a good Christian while you're there. Don't cuss at people. Don't be a sketchy business person. Collect a paycheck. Go home. Work is a necessity Work is something we have to do, not something we get to do. Work is something that is more of a punishment and a result of the curse in Genesis 3 than it is Genesis 1. Work is just something that we have to do. We just need to work in order to get enough to be comfortable, to be secure, to be happy. Work is not in and of itself all that good. Work is just how we get what's good. Work is just a pathway to get there. Work as just a means to an end. And if we're honest, this understanding of work, much like Bob Parr or Mr. Incredible, has been slowly chipping away at our souls. Statistics say the average North American works about four more weeks than they did per year than they did in 1979. All studies that you can look at show that anxiety around work continues to skyrocket, not just about whether or not you'll have work, but about what you do in your work and what work looks like and all those kind of things. Those studies happened long before COVID-19 became a reality. But here's the thing. Work is not just work. Tim Keller, in his excellent book on the topic, Every Good Endeavor, defines work this way. Work is the rearranging of the raw material of God's creation in such a way that it helps the world in general and people in particular thrive and flourish. What if work isn't a necessary evil, but it's a gift? What if work is not just a burden, but it's an opportunity? Whether that's in an office or behind a coffee shop bar, what if work is a gift. See, doesn't Keller's definition sound more like an art piece to you? Doesn't it sound like something beautiful? What if work is something we create and not something we consume? What if work is actually something beautiful, something glorious, something that God has ordained and put before us, that God has called us to do? It's not just something we do to get money, to consume, and be comfortable. What if work is so much more than we ever thought it was? What if work is not just for consumption? Make more money, get more stuff, buy a bigger house, make sure you and yours are taken care of. Get a bigger TV every couple years. Get yourself on the chart that moves upwards and to the right. Make sure your life is getting better and better and better and a bigger tax return on this and a bigger this and a bigger this and a bigger this. Work is all about getting more and more and more. Live out the Canadian dream, which if we are honest is just the American dream, clothed in fake humility. To have more for me. To have more for what I want. What if work is actually about creativity? But as it's sometimes painted in our culture, and I would say even in church culture, creativity is not truly work, is it? It's kid stuff. It's what they do upstairs in kids' church with Miss Sarah, right? It's, it's coloring sheets and it's painting and it's, you know, getting messy and, and doing creative things and having creative ideas. Like, it's nice, but it's not work. 
It, it's something you do as a hobby. It's, it's something you do as a dream. It's something you do when you're a broke artist, when you're young. Not something you do if you're a serious adult. Creativity is not real work. But what I don't think we can miss is that on the final day of creation, and we're not going to read the whole story of creation where God creates and sees that it is good and proclaims that it is good. And at the very end, we see God in the sixth day of creation. Here's what he says, verse 26 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion or rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion, have rule, have reign over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every other living thing that moves on the earth. See, what we see in this passage is that we look at all of creation, we look at what God has made and called good. We see the livestock, the birds, everything. We see ants create colonies, bees create hives, but humans are made to create something else. Humans create culture. We create culture. See, pardon me, God the Father in this story blesses humankind and, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. And that's about more than procreating. That's about more than what Adam and Eve will do to make more humans. It's about more than just carrying on the human race. It's about the fact that we as human beings are called to create culture. And what is culture? Culture comes from the Latin word colere, which I'm probably not pronouncing right, but colere is this word that means to cultivate. It means to take something that's there like a gardener, to create it into something more beautiful, to cultivate, to care for, to rule, to have dominion over. That's what the passage we just read talks about. It is the foundation of what society is like. Culture is not just about the arts, but it's about every single piece of what we do, about the relationships, about the meals we eat, about the customs we have, about the language we speak, about the education that our kids get, about the infrastructure that we have, whether that's the roads we drive on or the homes that we live and see as human beings. We are made in the image of God and we are called to fill the earth. We are called to fill the earth and that's about more than just making more people. We are actively invited to participate in what theologians call the cultural mandate. That, that's this verse here, this 26, 27, 28, where God says, be fruitful and multiply. That's what theologians have called the cultural mandate. And what that basically means is that God's inviting us to help build something to help create something, to become a partner with him in what he is doing. What we do creates something, whether that's something visible, like a house, like a roadway, like a spreadsheet. Sometimes it's invisible. Sometimes it's a relationship or knowledge or thought. And that's what a holistic, of Genesis, holistic understanding of Genesis 1 leads us to. When we look at Genesis 1, not just as like a scientific text to argue about all these things, but rather a poetic, beautiful picture of who God is and what God is like, we see that God didn't create us as cheap labor. 
God did not make you as cheap slave labor. You're created with a purpose and invited into what God is doing in the world. Genesis 2 tells us that God, when he created Adam, breathed life into us. And as the greatest invitation, he breathed that life into us to participate with God in what he is doing. And so the question we then must ask is, what is God doing? What is God doing in the world? Well, we find ourselves in this passage. What do we know at this point in the biblical narrative? What do we know about God here? We know that he creates We know that what he creates is good. And as the narrative carries on through the Old and New Testaments, you and I know that we'll see and we'll understand many more attributes and aspects of Yahweh, of God, of the triune king that we serve, that he is three in one, that he is sovereign over all of his creation, that he is rich in love, not only for his people in Christ, um, but that he will show through Jesus his love and mercy to the entire world. But at this point, In Genesis 1 and 2, what do we know about God? What do we see about God? At this point, what we know is that in an overflow of goodness, in an overflow of relational goodness between Father, Son, and Spirit, Yahweh is creating. And what he is creating, he proclaims good, and he creates people. He creates humanity, male and female, and he calls it very good, and he blesses them. Do you ever consider how radical that is? That our God creates humanity in his image and blesses them. The first action of God toward us is to bless us. That is the God's first indication. He blesses them. He says, be fruitful and multiply. That is the foundation of God's relationship to humanity. Our sin and our brokenness. And what we're going to see in Genesis 3 as Jonathan looks at that passage next week is that there is something wrong. There is something broken with us. But Genesis 1 says that our foundation, the foundation of God's relationship towards us first and foremost is that we are created by him in his image. And that's a beautiful reality. But we have to notice that God blesses them. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. He does not bless them and say, get to work. He does not bless them and say, go, do something. Stop sitting around, stop being lazy. He does not bless them and say, I'm the boss, don't make me mad. He does not bless them and say, don't screw this up. What we cannot miss in this passage is that Adam and Eve were not created simply to sit and worship and try not to make God mad. That is an incredibly low understanding of what Genesis 1 is about. They were created and the image of God to be partners with God. And like most of the other creation narratives of the ancient Near East, Adam and Eve weren't created just to be servants, just to be slaves. See, in the ancient Near East, there was a number of creation stories. And one of the big criticisms of of biblical theology or biblical Christian understanding is that, well, you know, the creation story of the Christian Bible is actually quite similar to other ancient Near Eastern uh, creation stories. It's quite similar. There's not really a ton of differences. Some of the language is even the same. But what's interesting, what is the one big difference between the Christian creation story or the Hebrew creation story and every other creation story. Whereas every other creation story has the gods creating humankind because they needed free labor. They're sick of working. They're sick of having to do it themselves. They're sick of having to provide for themselves. They need someone to provide for them. They need somebody to worship them. They need someone to make it okay for them. 
The Hebrew God, the Christian God that we serve creates out of an abundance of love, creates out of an overflow of his goodness and his kindness. He creates not because he desperately needs us, but because there's so much love that it overflows into the creation of all things, capped off with the creation of us in his image. And so after God completes his creation week, he rests on the Sabbath, but then look at what happens. After God spends six days creating and he rests, showing us a pattern of Sabbath, what happens next in Genesis 2? The Lord God took man and he put him in the Garden of Eden. To what? To work it and keep it. Work existed before the fall. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in it, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So there's this desire that God has for us to operate in community. We weren't meant to go it alone. But verse 19, and here's what I want to focus on. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So God creates and forms all creation. He spends six days forming the seas and the skies and the animals that scurry along the earth, the birds of the air and the livestock and everything in between. And what does God do in week number two? He brings those same creations to Adam and he says, what do you think? He doesn't tell Adam what they're named. He invites Adam to participate with him in naming the creation. He invites Adam to be a part of what is happening. He says, what do you think? What what would you call this thing? And, And when Adam says it, he doesn't say, that's stupid. What? Are you dumb? No, it's called this. No, he says, that's what it will be named. Good idea, Adam. See, I love this picture of God because God's actually bringing Adam not just information, but he's inviting him into the artistic process. And what we see here is that creation is actually a project that is ongoing. It's not a product that's done. God creates fully and completely in six days, so much so that on the seventh day, he can sit at his finished work and say, it is done, it is good, it is right, I can rest. But week number two, God comes and says, okay, what's next? Adam, let's name the creation together. You should take care of this garden. Creation is a project and not a product, which means we have a responsibility to care for it. That's a whole other teaching on what you and I as Christians have as a responsibility to care for this earth and the environment that is there. But so what? What does this matter to you and me? I work in an office, I I type all day, I do spreadsheets or I swing a hammer or I'm changing diapers and just trying to make sure my kids turn out okay. What is Genesis 1? What is what God interacts with Adam? How, How does that have anything to do with me? I'm just a student, I'm plugging away on my homework, I'm trying to finish my degree in the midst of a pandemic where I'm sweating and I'm toiling in like 38 degree heat because there's a heat wave right now and I'm just trying to get through a day and pay my mortgage and make sure my kids are provided for. What this means, what Genesis 1 means, not just for Adam, not just for Eve, not just for people who serve in spiritual vocations, but for anyone, anywhere who does any form of work, which is all of us, what it means is that you are not just sitting around waiting for heaven. 
You are not simply filling up space trying to make ends meet. As Pastor Erwin McManus puts it, you are a work of art and you are an artist at work. You are a work of art made in the image of God. Your life matters. Your story matters. What you do matters because you matter. Because God in his goodness, in his sovereignty, in his foresight of all that would and could and will happen, looked and said, your life matters. What you do matters. What you work on matters, whatever it may be. Not because of the dollar amount that it brings in. Not even just because of the number of people who might come to Christ while you are at work. But because you are operating in your very nature. And when you work, you create something. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, the psalmist tells us, in the image of God. See, you're created in the image of God, and God doesn't make kitsch. You know what I'm talking about when I say kitsch, right? What kitsch is, is it's cheap art. It's knockoff art. It's things that are mass-produced, and they're supposed to look good and feel good and feel like they're creative and and all these kind of things. There's a lack of depth. It's a cheap knockoff. It's phony. It's false sentimentality. It's been mass-produced in a factory to just sell for as cheap as possible, but to get as much profit as possible. Think maybe (laughs) H&M. Think of these pieces of art that don't mean anything, but they're just fake. God doesn't make kitsch. God doesn't make cheap art. You are not cheap art. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's the truth about you today. That is what is true of you. And God, as he creates you in his image, gives you work to do, gives you something glorious to do in the eyes of God. I love the way Martin Luther King Jr. describes this. He says, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, He should sweep streets as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Imagine what would happen if we could view our work that way. Imagine what would happen in our lives if our work could flow out of the essence of who we are, not a desire to get a paycheck. What if work is not just about what we do out there, but what flows out from inside us? That in imaging God in the overflow of his goodness, of his kindness, he creates all things. And the image of God that God has placed on us is that overflows in our life as we follow Jesus. What if our work could express that exact same thing? I love the way Paul describes it in Ephesians when he's talking about the gospel. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. He's saying you're saved by what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Why God loves you, why God has forgiven you, why you are cleansed of your sin, it's not because of the work you do. It's because of what Jesus did. But then he immediately follows it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk walk in them. See what Paul is saying there that is you are created for something. You are not created to accept Christ and then sit around on your bum until you go to heaven. 
That's just not the call of God in our lives. What God is calling you to at the intersection of your passion and your gifts and your talents, what God is bringing you into, whatever it is you do for work right now, is the mosaic of what he is doing in the world. This beautiful picture that is pieced together by street sweepers and poets and construction workers and teachers and whatever it is you may do, God is doing something in you and through you in the world. That's what God's forming. That's what God is shaping. It's making beauty and goodness, no matter how dark and formless the world may seem, that is the direction and flow of what God is doing in your life. That is what God wants to do with your work. Oz Guinness describes calling this way. He says, calling is not a matter of being and doing what we are, but it's also a matter of becoming what we are not yet, but are called by God to be. This series is about more than just telling you to work harder. This series is about more than telling you that whatever you do, you should try hard at it. You should, by the way. But what this series is about is about stepping into what we have been made for. And it's more than a title. And it's more than a salary. And it's more than a tax bracket. And it's more than the type of home we can afford. See, when I was younger, as I explained, I thought that I had to do a certain thing to be in my calling. I had to have a certain job title or have a certain type of thing. Here's what I've realized in doing a couple different jobs. When I was a barista, I learned that I could help someone learn more about coffee and see them try it for the first time and get excited for them. When I worked as a concrete laborer and I stood behind my friend who was starting a business and raked concrete so he could shape it and form it into something beautiful, I realized I got to watch my friend grow into a great businessman and stand behind him and support him that way. When I worked as a care aide, with people with developmental disabilities. I get to watch them grow and learn how to be independent and do things like make their own meals or go out and and do banking or whatever it may be. You know what I realized? My calling was never about a title of camp director or pastor or anything else. My calling has always been about loving to see people grow. What God's put in my life is a desire to see people grow, whatever that might look like. And, And if I realize that, then I can realize that the point isn't being called a youth pastor. It's not having a job that makes me a certain thing. It's not doing anything in particular, but it's about something that we get from Jesus. Here's how Jesus is described in Colossians chapter one. I'm gonna read this passage. It's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's so beautiful and worth reading. Colossians chapter one, starting in verse nine. Christ is supreme. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of his church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. He is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him, God has reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. That is what our calling is about. Jesus is the forerunner. Jesus is firstborn. Jesus is supreme. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. But we follow in the same task. 
We follow in the same tasks of making the invisible God visible to a watching world. That is our call, whatever it might look like. You are not a teacher. You are a teacher who is the visible image of the invisible God in seeing and calling out people's potential. You are not a stay-at-home parent. You are the image of the invisible God calling the best out of your kids, raising them to be people of consequence who love Jesus and love others. You're not just a student. You're someone who's learning and growing and stepping into what God is forming you into for a lifetime of loving God and loving others. You're not just an administrator. You're the visible image of the invisible God organizing, bringing about what's right and good in an office space or on a spreadsheet or whatever it may be. Whatever you do, it is not just what you are. You are invited as an image bearer of God to be a partner with God in bringing about a visible picture of what God is like to our world. That is the invitation. God blesses us as his image bearers. We are creators who have been created with purpose and with intention and with beauty and with goodness. That's how God has created us and God speaks over us. The invitation, the order, the command, but mostly the invitation to be fruitful and multiply, to create something beautiful. What would happen if we could recapture an imagination of what God might want to do through our work? Not just about a paycheck, not just about a title, but about creating something beautiful. What if your life isn't just a slog to get through on the way to heaven, but a glorious work of art in progress to show the world the beauty of Jesus? You are the visible image of the invisible God as a follower of Christ. Christ is the firstborn. Christ is supreme. So follow Christ. Imitate him as a visible image to the world of what Jesus is like. The question, my friends, is you are made by a creator as a creator is not what will you create, pardon me, is not whether or not you will create, it is what you will create. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you created us. I thank you that you, in an overflow of your goodness, created all things. That we read that you spoke, you created, you made all that is before us, the Golden Ears Mountains, and the Fraser River, and the sunflowers, and the beautiful sky. God, you created all things around us, and you created them through Christ. So Jesus, today we praise you as the firstborn, the supreme of all creation. But we ask, Lord Jesus, would you show us what it looks like to follow you, to imitate you, in our work, that we would understand that we are created to create, that we are artists at work, that you've created us, Lord, beautifully, perfectly, that you know the number of hairs on our heads, that you've set out good works for us to do. Would we step into them, Lord? Whatever they might be, whether they're exciting to us right now, whether they're challenging to us right now, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would call us into what you have for us. Help us, Jesus, to follow you as our big brother who died for us, who rose again for us. As we follow you, would you help us to come alongside you to show the world what God is like? Jesus, we invite you to work in our lives today and we thank you that you created us. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen.